0: On today's show I'm gonna be talking with OG Suicide and his new single is called Keep It G. He's got a lot more going on though. He goes back to some of the classic West Coast rap. Uh I wanna say straight out of Compton, uh that scene. I'm gonna get his opinions on that and what he's been doing since then. So welcome to the show, OG.
1: Oh yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the for the invite.
0: Hey, I know you've got a lot of new stuff going on, but I have to ask you about, you know, the old days. Um I'm sure you're asked a million times about the movie Straight Outta Compton, your thoughts, you know, that time and place. So just to kinda of give us a crash course, I mean, what were you doing, you know, back in the nineties and, and what were you doing with your music back then?
1: Oh, I was uh I was grinding, um, you know, in the streets most definitely. I'm Compton, born and raised. I was grinding in the nineties, you know, in the streets doing music. I was working with my um, my godfather, the great Leon Haywood, rest in peace. Um, that's who pretty much introduced me to the music game and took me under the wing and taught me the you know, the the business part of it and also put me in the studio and, you know, recorded a bunch of music. And as far as the straight out of Compton movie, a lot of stuff in there was fabricated. It's a lot of stuff in there that that just didn't happen.
0: Well, today now you got the chance to set some of that straight. But before we go a little deep, because because I love talking about the West Coast, we need we need more West Coast representation. Since you know I grew up on the West Coast, but I didn't know the Leon Haywood part. Is this Leon Haywood, like you know, from the seventies? The the guy I'm thinking of. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I made
1: the record. I want to do something freaky to you, bad mama jama. Yes, that's
0: my guy. Don't push that it. Cartoon. Don't force it. Let it happen naturally. Exactly. Oh my exactly. God, you're bringing me back to my high school now. <laughs> that's what I listened to back then. So I'm excited. I mean, how did that collaboration happen?
1: Um, well, you know, he's always um, was looking for artists to work with. You know, because he also was the guy that put out the battle around for Tidy T out of Compton. And okay. we went up, I went up to the studio and, you know, met with Leon, because I used to go up there and, uh, you know, just like his studio was one of the places a lot of different artists would just go up there and, you know, hang out, you know, because it, it, it was a, you know, well open armed studio. So me and Haywood was talking back in like 92, and he asked me to, you know, bring some music, like, let me hear some of your music. So we went by the studio and I played him some of my music, you know, on the cassette tape, because back then that's all we had was the cassette tapes. We was even mm-hmm. recording on cassette tapes. So I played it and, you know, from there on, you know, he signed me to Eve Jim Records and introduced me to the music game. And like I said, showed me the ropes of it. And So that's one person I can't ever forget
0: Well, I mean, you really came out of the gates with some big people behind you.
1: Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And I also, in the 80s, like 87, 88, um, worked with Mixed Master Spade as well. You know, Mixed Master Spade was also a person that, you know, tried to help a lot of different artists in the game. And and, and it's sad, too, because he wasn't mentioned in the Straight Out of Compton movie. You can't never... Mention, especially with music, you can never mention Compton and not mention Mixmaster Spade and Tidy T. Like these cats was on the radio before Easy was on the radio. Then Easy came and took it to a whole nother level, which he was working with Lonzo, who was a member of the World Class Wrecking Crew when Dr. Dre and DJ Yella was a part of his, you know, that crew as well. But yeah, you, you can't mention Compton and not mention Mixmaster Spade and Tidy T because the Badderound was a big record.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, rap and hip hop evolved so much in the '80s and '90s, and it seemed like it all came to a head in Compton. And obviously, there was a lot of other stuff going on, but it just seems yes. like we picked a few people to represent the breakthroughs and the landmarks. Yes. I mean, who do you think also gets their due from the whole, you know, California rap scene? Do you think there's, you know, the underrepresented people, you know, the people you've been mentioning already, they're not quite as household names as others, but in some ways they're just as influential. Yeah,
1: because like I said, Spade, him and Tidy T had a record called Just Say No that hit the radio like in the 80s. You know, mm-hmm. like eighty eighty seven. 87, you know, around that time when um, Cola Records was was a big label, you know, before a lot of the other labels really was, you know, even known or popular, you know, Cola Records was one of the major labels back then in the 80s. So, yeah, most definite. And Lonzo, he, you know, he didn't get his, you know, his credit like he should have as well in the movie because Lonzo was who Dre took easy to, and he helped form and, you know, connect the dots for NWA.
0: You've had a lot of interesting connections with a variety of record labels. Some, you know, you know, the one that is so cool is not cool, but it sounds like you turned down a lot of money. At one point you got offered what was it, $300,000 to sign with a label?
1: 350000 yeah. Yeah, from Priority Records. And I was with Executive Entertainment, which was um, an independent label that I was with. And, you know, during that time, in 1998, um, the owner of the label, Big Jazz, had got incorporated and uh, incarcerated. And so when he was locked up, you know, he told me that Marv who was the head A&R at Priority Records, offered a deal, put a deal on the table for me to, um, you know, to sign me for 350000 And, I mean, I'm loyal to the soil, you know. That, that's how I grew up, you know, growing up in Compton. I'm, I'm from that era where, you know, we, we loyalty mean everything to us. So I told Jess, you know, like, you know, he just had got locked up, so I'm, I wasn't going to just jump ships like that. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I wrote it out and held the studio down until it came time for us to close the doors on the studio. But like I had told Jess, like, no, I'm cool. Like, I'm cool, man. I'm going to just, you know, just stay here and and, and just hold the lab down, which was in Gardena, California. And, um, yeah, I told Marv I was cool on the deal.
0: You know, adjusting that for inflation, that number is getting close to half a million dollars you turned down. And I think a lot of people would look at that a lot of young hungry artists would say boy <laughs> this guy does have a lot of integrity but <laughs> they
1: say he was dumb he was dumb for doing that but i'm i'm loyal and, and i was making good money from the music independently at the time too i toured to japan you know a uh, big tour in japan to nagoya and tokyo in 2000 off of my music with no record deal behind me And we Mm -hmm. had moved over 20-something thousand units independently overseas in Japan. But my music had been already recognized and known in Japan from, you know, the Leon Haywood days, from Mm the 90s, early 90s, you know, like Germany, France, London, Japan, Australia, Italy, Switzerland. That's where my impeccable fan base is right now to this day. I have an album that came out in 99 under executive entertainment that I recently pressed up because it's still in demand because overseas, they want the music from the nineties still.
0: I see. So they have a lot of Mm -hmm. nostalgia for that specific era. Yes. Yes. And I'm just curious when you do a concert in Japan, how do you think they see American rappers? What's special about that to them?
1: our our lifestyle because they had low, you know, they had low riders out there. They had, um, you know, people in Japan, you know, dress like African-Americans. They had people in Japan dress cholo style with the long mustaches and the khakis up to their chest with the Pendleton zone. Like our lifestyle, our culture is, is big over there. It's big. So, so it's to, not like just say, the, like the music; it's the
0: it's it's yes. the fashion; it's the it's lifestyle. The,
1: the lifestyle, yes. And it blew me away. I'm like, wow! I'm on the other side of the world. <laughs> Look at this. I mean, they had Crips and Bloods in Japan, and that really shocked wow. me. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is crazy. And, and then it really it really impressed me too, just to see people crying for me, you know, this hysterical of this is really me, that that's really me. And they they were shocked, like, wow. When they picked me up from the airport, people was just going crazy. Like they wanted to pull their hair out and I'm humble.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's a lot of truth to that saying, you know, you're more famous outside your hometown
1: big 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 facts big facts cuz my album that came out in 95 of the E-Gem Suicide um the final exit album it did big everywhere you know in the streets in Cali and Sacramento and up north and it it did did real good amazing but overseas is where it was embraced the hardest
0: well Your story is interesting because you've had, you know, these eras of you know great success. Then you kind of have had some downtime in your career too, and then you have some interesting stories to tell. What what do you think is well, you know, if you go to your website, there's lots of great info. But what would you say, you know, between then and now, you know, what's been the biggest part of your evolution?
1: The biggest part of my evolution is what I I've come to really realize what my true calling is and me being a suicide survivor, you know, when I was 22, I actually attempted suicide by shooting myself in the head and my life was spared. So my biggest, like I say thing now is inspiring others to never give up, to show them that there's nothing in this world that could go on in your life to make you want to take your life. I was 22 at the time, heavily gangbanging in the streets. I was homeless, no guidance, just, I was just lost in the world, just lost. And, you know, I felt like I had came to the end of my ropes, like there was no purpose for me to want to live. There was no reason for me to continue on. At least that's how I felt at the time. And December the 31st, 1991, I actually took a gun and put it to my head and shot myself.
0: Wow. So what What brought you so low since it seemed like you had so much going for you?
1: What, well, it this happened before. This happened in 91. So this was before okay. I even met Haywood.
0: Okay, so this is right before that. This was okay. be way,
1: yeah, this was be prior to that. Before I even met um, Leon Haywood, and he took me pretty much under the wing. This was before that, and that's why the my first album was self-titled. You know, Final Exit was a record that I wrote, um, for and it was based off a book that I read. Final Exit mm-hmm. is a book that I got out of Barnes and Nobles that was based on people living in the world with a terminal illness. So pretty much, you know, the the death was their final exit. And I felt like the way I was living, I was living a terminal illness. I was gangbanging. I was in wars and I was selling drugs. I mean, I was really living that life that some people rap about, that come out of Compton. I really lived it. And I feel like I said, I feel like I was living a terminal illness. And this is the book that I had got out of Barnes and Nobles after my attempt. And then a buddy of mine named Lee, you know, he did production, he did beats. So I told him I was, you know, I was really going to take the music serious. Cause I was doing stuff in the eighties with 87, 88 with mixed master Spade. But I wasn't as serious as I was until after I got out the hospital. Because when I got out the hospital, I was still homeless. I was still in the same situation I was in before I tried to leave the world. So I had to make up my mind to to really get, figure it out and get my life together, which I started getting beats from Lee and writing about my life to the beats and I mean it really really sounded good and that's when we went and we met with Leon Haywood in 92 and I played him the music and history was made
0: well and that's I think what people like hearing about your story it's inspiring and and based off that you know I want to ask you a serious question because you do have an inspiring story Mm -hmm. but A lot of people, especially casual observers to, you know, rap and hip hop, you know, they associate the very surface. Oh, this is, you know, very, you know, they think of gangster rap. There's a a lot of people that's still stuck in their mind and that whole idea of street credibility. But all the rappers and hip hop artists I talk to personally are very positive people with usually who have overcome a lot and have uh, an inspiring story. And they've learned something from their experiences, either being in a Mm -hmm. gang, being homeless, being on the street. So I'm just wondering for you, this whole idea of credibility, street cred in the rap world, is that kind of a double-edged sword? Because on the one hand, everyone wants to prove themselves and have their credibility. But as you found out, that also brought you down, you know, the, the gang violence, the drug dealing. So how do you reconcile... Wanting to not destroy yourself, but also still maintaining your street credibility.
1: Well, the street, when it comes to that, it's about growing up. As you get older, you mature. Not everyone do. But this is something that you have to want to do. And the street credibility comes from who you were when you were in the streets. It, It was more like a respect thing. You gain the respect to where once you reach a certain peak to where you're considered an OG, it's like you you still live off the value of the things you've done. It's not like you have to do it anymore. You don't have to live that life no more. You live that life. So now it's time to reach back and show people A different way, like my nephew, A.D., who's on the Keep It G record with me, who I paved the way for, he was one that grew up in the neighborhood with me. And instead of teaching him to pick up a gun, which some people do, I taught him and inspired him to pick up a mic because I told him the life that I'm living, I won't be able to get a 401k 20 years from now, 15 years from now. And this was 20 years ago when I told him this. So I told him, the life I'm living, don't, don't follow my footsteps because I know I'm not living right. And it don't make sense to inspire you to do what I'm doing because you see me doing it. Be better than me. But the life I live now, I inspire my young people. You can follow my footsteps now because the steps I'm taking now is, is forward and it's in the right direction. And I most definitely can show you the right path. Because I've been down every road that a lot of the young people want to go down, so I can let them know this road, this road right here, got a lot of potholes in it. This road is real bumpy. This is the road you want right here with the smoother surface. It's a better ride.
0: One thing I really like about the rap and hip hop community is their entrepreneurial spirit, and I know you know in other genres. Artists create their own record labels, but there's just something very unique about your world. And, you know, the record labels who, you know, the people involved, they aren't these executives. They're other artists who create a label and then help nurture and bring up other artists. I mean, do you think that's unique to your world?
1: Yes, it is. Like, like my, my, my brother from another mother right now, um, the native, Um, Voodoo Nation LLC is the label and he's also an artist um, that been doing music for a while and we ended up you know linking up and sit down and had a few meetings about three years ago and he wanted to put out some music for me he was like man I like what you're doing I would like to get behind what you're doing and you know, let's let's put some music out together. Let me put an album out for you. And that was the album that's out now, which is the OGs Are Forever album, which also features the Keep It G record is on that album.
0: What's so funny is, you know, this genre is so popular and profitable, but back in the day, you know, before major record labels could see that, and yes. it, it was it was this necessity to say, hey, if no one else will touch this, I'm going to, on my four-track, record my own music yes. and sell it on cassette myself, right, directly to the people. Directly to the people, yes.
1: So yes. it sounds and like you, you, you did your
0: yeah. Well, you were probably, you know, were you duplicating your own cassettes? I mean, young people don't realize what it yeah, was like. Yeah. Back
1: in the days. Yes. Oh, yeah. That was it. We we, we we had the money to get a full track. And then once we made a few dollars, we moved up to the to the six track. And then we had to Tascam six sixteen 16 track, you know, and so on. And then, like I said, I, you know, ended up on the 24 track. The two-inch reel with
0: with my who eventually became a godfather to me, Leon Haywood. Now, tell me a little more about that, because I am Mm -hmm. a Leon Haywood fan, and he's a name that you don't hear enough now. But like I was saying, but you know, I want to do something freaky to you. I love like late seventies. I think it was nineteen eighty. It was almost Mm -hmm. a comeback of sorts for him. Don't push it. Don't force it. And, uh, yep. you know, and people you know, don't realize to have... that track. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, Dre used that track for G thing.
0: Okay. See, I mean, yeah, that was, he... I
1: want to do something freaky to you.
0: Yeah. And I, what I like about Leon's story is he had longevity and he changed with the times he didn't just get stuck in one thing. And the fact yeah. that he reached out yeah. to people like you and, you know, didn't just get comfortable with what he was doing. Um, I mean, when you talk to him, just business-wise, did he share, like, how did he keep his career going? What business advice did he have for you?
1: Um, For one, he said you have to stay consistent. You have to stay in the public's eye. You you can't give room for people to forget about you. You got to keep feeding the music to your fans, you know, because eventually if you don't, some fans are, are, are fade away but then you have fans that will never go nowhere that are, that are reach out to you which I did before I put out the OG's on forever I was putting out records here and there like in 2003 to 2006 I was embracing a lot of artists and helping artists and we was doing the CG records which is my label Sidal Gang and I was putting out music and we was putting out mixtapes and like, a lot of artists, they just, they wasn't loyal. Like, no matter how much you want to help people, if they're not loyal to nothing, some people think the grass is greener on the other side, which I tell them all the time. I don't mind being the turtle in the race with the rabbit, because I'm going to win in the end. You know, like mm-hmm. I tell them, some people's success that happen right away, they, they, they end up becoming one-hit wonders, and, and it's about longevity in this game. And I learned that from Haywood because even as he was older, he was remixing music. He was still in the 60 something years old, was still getting in the studio and doing remixes to some of his music. And then also putting out blues artists like Buddy Ace and gospel music. He was tapping into all genres of music and giving them opportunity to 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 get out there like the bat around for Tidy t that record was a humongous record Tidy t got a a letter from nancy reagan complimenting him about that record
0: wow so that in
1: the 80s and that's when you know the bat around was was in compton was raiding the drug houses with the bat around and he wrote a record about it and it was big, and Haywood he, he put it out.
0: Hmm. Well, it's funny you mentioned Nancy Reagan in the '80s. You know, I still have a soft spot for the very early '80s, if not 1980, 81. You know, the post Sugar <laughs> Hill Gang, but Sugar Hill yeah. Records. How much? Yes. You know, did you meet any of those people back in the day?
1: Um. Um. I met. Um who I ended up meeting was uh, Darnell Robinson, which is one of the, he's the grandson of one of the members of the Sugar Hill gang. And I ended up putting out a record for him and it was, it tripped me out. Cause I'm like, man, your family is a major part of hip hop. Mm-hmm. Like, and you reaching out, like what's going on? Like what's really going on? He was more like, I kind of want to do it myself, do my own thing. Mm -hmm. And I end up putting the record out for him.
0: And and that was
1: really a trip to me. Yeah, it was a, it was a trip.
0: (laughs) I mean, do you feel nostalgic for certain pockets of rap and hip hop, like early eighties, mid eighties, late eighties? I mean, what what are your favorite kind of pockets that maybe don't get the credit they deserve?
1: Um, I know for sure Eric B. and Rakim should have got a lot more credit than they did. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, it, man, Rakim was he was a ma- he was a, a major lyricist. He, mm-hmm. he really was. And it's um, a rapper out of Compton that was named Mixmaster Ken. He was around with Mixmaster Spade, and Mixmaster Ken used to put out. Music just like Tidy T, but for some reason he never reached that, that major peak that, you know, was, was well, what everyone expect to meet. And Rodney and Joe Cooley as well. Like, mm-hmm. I really feel they didn't get the exposure that they really deserved. And, and Tone Lo, which he mm-hmm. ended up becoming an actor, you know, later down the line. And he, he got into the, in the film industry which he mm-hmm. shifted his career, which is a good thing. So
0: you know, when you mentioned Eric so B. Yeah. Yes. Well, when you mention Eric B. and Rakim, it makes me think of, I don't know if it was one or both of them that um, performed on a Jody Watley single, I think in the late 80s. I think it was Friends? Ooh. Something like that. But I think people had done it before, but that's when I think there's a first an awareness of A rap artist guesting on a vocalist song, you know, doing now it's such a an established thing. But I remember back then that they were, I think, some of the first people I was aware of that were collaborating with vocalists. For lack of a better word, you know, being like the featured guest rapper on a singer's song. Yeah, and then boy, who you know, thirty years later, look how that is, is almost you know major. obligatory. Yeah,
1: yeah, just like years so is, ago, you remember back in the days, the hype man would be the hype man, and then the hype man would end up becoming a rapper and
0: blowing up. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Keep It G, since that's okay. your latest. Um, what inspired you to go back in the studio and record this?
1: For one, I, I was really getting hit up by a lot of fans because I was putting out singles here and there, you know, just just to stay relevant. But I was really get It was really it came to a point to where it was a, a demand for an album from me, which I hadn't put out an album a physical album in like about 20 years. Wow. So I got back in the studio and yeah. And I had worked on this album three years prior to me even releasing it because I wanted to make sure every song on there can stand out as a single. Mm -hmm. Which when you listen to the album, it do.
0: Now what's the whole album called?
1: OGs are forever.
0: Nice. And is the whole album out yet? Are you just teasing with this single? Yes. yes um, the
1: album, is. Um, it, it's been out. It came out uh, May 31st, actually, of last year.
0: Okay. And now you're in this mm-hmm. crunch with, with the um coronavirus where it's kind of preventing a lot of people from performing live. Had you yes. started doing more live gigs to promote the album?
1: Uh, well, we're getting ready. I'm going to start working on a documentary, um, mm-hmm. my life story documentary. We start shooting that September the 17th. And I have a virtual show concert coming up in October
0: mm-hmm.
1: that I'm going to be doing. And what what I did learn, like, I'm from the old school era before internet, which um, we didn't have internet back then, so we would have to get out there. Like right now, if it was the coronavirus was out back then, it would really be bad because nobody at the time could really go out and really market and promote themselves. So it would be a waste of marketing. But thanks to the digital and the internet, you can really still keep yourself out there in front of people's faces by running ads. And and your own you know personal fan base, and you can still push yourself. And I I mean I do the digital billboards, the the steel billboards. So I I still do the old school um, promotion, and and a, along with the new school marketing and promotion, which is the digital. Mm-hmm. So it's still been good. It's been good, and I'm still shoot the uh, music videos. I'll rent out like a warehouse. or or have a location to where it's not, you know, it's not cluttered. Because when I shoot music videos, I only want certain people there anyway. So I handpick who I want there. But the videos I had shot, I shot prior to the coronavirus.
0: Well, the Keep It G video is really striking. Uh, Who was involved with that, and and how did you put that whole concept together?
1: Um, I was... I pretty much was listening to the record and I just, I jotted down uh you know, cause I always write my own treatments. So I would just write out the concepts of what I wanted in the video and Angelo, which is the director, I would give him, you know, my notes and he would come with ideas as well. And we, we bring it together. Like my video tragedy as well is, it's powerful. It's mm-hmm. powerful.
0: You know, your fans who are probably um, saying, well, we're, we're glad you put out new music, but what was some of the reaction of, you know, why did you wait so long? Did you have people coming out of the woodwork from 20 years ago oh, yeah. saying, where the heck yeah, have you yeah. been? And,
1: and, and I, I recently, um, it was recently because sometimes I'll be seeing like old clips of my um, album that came out under Eve, Jim, I'd be seeing people that put up MP3s of it on YouTube, and I'll go on there, comment, you know, on those YouTubes, and they respond like, no way, like, this is really you? Like, I didn't even know you still did music. And then when they go look it up and see, they like, wow, you – you put out a lot of stuff. Like, I didn't even know that. So, yeah, I, I do get that. And, man, what took so long? Like, we, this is music we need.
0: How about for the younger up-and-coming rappers who, hopefully, you know, maybe they've scouted eBay for some of your old early cassettes. And, I mean, do you get approached by, you know, these new guys saying, oh, wow, you know, your music influenced me or, oh, wow, someone turned me yes. on to your stuff. Well, what do you hear along those lines?
1: Um, I get a lot of messages on Instagram from a lot of young people. And I mean like 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 years old, the 18s and the early 20s. Be like, man, somebody sent me your music. I was just going through something and and somebody sent me your video and I just had to reach out to you and tell you, man, it's a blessing. You still here. And you know, when you got kids 12 years old, all nationalities hitting you up and telling you this, and I'm 51 years old, like that is what means the world to me to inspire people to want to continue to want to live, to not give up, to keep believing in yourself. Nothing real happens overnight Never give up. Mm-hmm. So that right there, like I said, I, it took me years to realize, but inspiring people to never give up is what my true calling is. It's, it's not really so much about the music anymore. It's more about the message.
0: Do you feel like you're a mentor to young artists the way that Leon Haywood was to you? Yes. Yes. Cause that's who I
1: learned it from. He, he embraced everyone that walked through that door and I
0: used to see it
1: like banging on wax. All of that was recorded at Leon Haywood's studio. Mm -hmm. All of those. Now where, where was was his
0: studio by the way? Yeah. Where was his studio? In LA
1: in Los Angeles off Crenshaw.
0: So what was that like? Did you see some interesting people come in and out while you were recording? Did you see other artists?
1: Patrice Russian, like, especially a lot of the the legends used to come through there.
0: You know, I've seen Bootsy come
1: through there and a lot of the old bass guitar players, and the OGs that, you know, was was around in the the 50s and 60s and 70s and, you know, coming through because a lot of people played on my Final Exit album, a lot of the old Mm -hmm. school cats, yeah, who are,
0: who, are, who are some, some of the others that played on that with you
1: um, cat named Tony I would have to it's been so long I would have to look at at the. I would have to line it log in to um uh, BMI and, and look <laughs> at my <laughs> the registrations and and read the old school name, Odell uh old, old cat cuz they all went by they just you know oh they call me Odell or, or, or this is this is um, Ross. Man, I'm a bass player. That I used to play for the Ohio, Ohio players. I used to play for these people. I used to do this. I was just like, wow. So that whole album is all live instruments. That's why mm-hmm. that album will always be a classic. The drums, right. everything, even the claps was live. Wow. So we literally had someone go in the vocal booth and clap. And, and, and Pimper recorded it. And we added it to the beat.
0: Wow. So no (laughs) drum machines. You had real claps.
1: Yeah, we had real drummers come in there and and set up and and play the drums. Bass, guitar, keyboard, all that.
0: Well, after we're done here, I'm going to be going to Discogs and looking up your liner notes. (laughs) Yes. Because that sounds really cool. And the name that you mentioned, you mentioned – Patrice Russian coming in. That's that's also reminding me of a lot of good music that I heard in high school time. That You know, 1980, mm-hmm. 81, 82. Boy, wouldn't you have loved to have uh, had her on one of your records?
1: I, I would have. And, and the, the,
0: the good part, she
1: came in. We was recording. She actually came in and sit in on one of my sessions.
0: Wow. Did she play she the piano? She came
1: in and. Huh? No, she... Did she, she play the piano there. for
0: you? She uh, I was, was just hanging out, out, listening
1: to you? Just hanging out, listening. She had came up there to talk to Leon Haywood. And mm-hmm. Leon, he used to always come in the studio and sit and, and watch me record. Because he said he liked my work ethics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, back then, it you, you know, like now with the digital, you can you could punch in when you make a mistake. You could punch in. And, and they could mm-hmm. cut it and paste it. Back then, you could do it with a two-inch, but it was a lot of work. So, me, I would learn my verses and know them without having to, you know, repeat it. I'll, I'll go in there and nail it. And that really used to impress Haywood. Like, man, I got people being here all day. I take all day to do one verse. You, you coming in. Here and you you on to the next record. He used to really trip off of that. Like wow. man, I really want this. This is this is my pat. This is my sport. I never played sports, so music at that time was my sport.
0: Do you think with digital recording, where a lot of people have home studios, think they miss out by not having these traditional studios where you're meeting people who maybe aren't playing on your record, but it's just like this this congregating of talent that you really don't meet when you're holed up in your home studio. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Because in studios like that, you you, you never know who's going to walk through the door. And that's how it was always at at Haywoods. You never know who's going to walk through the door.
0: See, sometimes it it pays to, to, to know a, a hit maker, you know, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I mean, we all, you know, we talk about, you know, integrity and not selling out. But at the same time, there is a certain, a lot of doors open once you get that top 10 hit. It, it really do.
1: It, it does.
0: So, your so song what? Go what
1: pop. They say you sold out because your song go pop. Like, no, the song went popular and it crossed over into a whole nother... Jara. So that doesn't mean you sold out. <laughs> when you get in the studio so- and record, you're not in there saying, oh yeah, I'm going to sell out on this one. <laughs>
0: right. You're just trying to make the best record that you can.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: But I don't know. I, I think there's so many good songs out there that never, you know, charted, but what's so yeah. nice about the internet, people can discover, you know, entire albums and, album tracks that were never released and now with time yes. and it's almost like the internet is making it so we're not so dependent on just you know a hit People can download and select what their favorite songs are off the album
1: Mm-hmm. and that's the good thing that is
0: so, so for your uh, latest album besides you know keep it g what are the other tracks that you're most proud of
1: um sometimes it's one of my favorite records. That's a record um, where I, I speak about, you know, just just how life is sometimes. And the first verse is dedicated to my adopted mother who, uh, you know, when I first was abandoned by my real mother and father, and I was took by Social Children's Services and the authorities, her home was the home that I was took to. And she she embraced me and cared for me. I was eighteen months too. She loved me mm-hmm. so much to where she ended up adopting me Wow and when I got you know I was growing up growing up in Compton is you know the typical life you 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 automatically just become a part of the streets, you know just growing up and hanging hanging with the older cats and just fascinated by their lifestyles of you know fancy cars and you know money and just just being respected. And, 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 you know, when I was 16, you know, Ms. Price, she had got sick. So her daughters was pretty much in control of her house at the time, and they had put me out. When I was, That's how I ended up homeless, when I was like 16. So no other place to go or nobody else to call family at that time but the streets, the people who I've been around. Growing up uh, in the streets, so that's who my family was. you know the OGs then was uncles to me and big brothers to me that really cared for me, that really showed me how to survive.
0: mhm, yep. you know to peop- to people who have never experienced that, and they kind of you know put that into a little compartment. And think, oh, that that happened over, you know, in Compton. You know, that doesn't affect my life. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're hearing so many more people sharing their stories through the Black Lives Matter movement. So, and obviously, rap and hip-hop has been a huge part of just the Black community sharing their experience, especially during times yeah. when mainstream media was really not portraying your lives and you know, a variety of lives. It was just a very middle America life. Yes. So I, I'm just really curious, you know, now that you've had a platform, you know, are, are you happy with how people have used rap and hip hop to, you know, show America, show the world, you know, different lives that aren't normally portrayed in the media?
1: I, I love it. I love it because, you know, sometimes the media will take it and put their own twist on it and, you know, try to put you in a position where your back is against the wall. To You know, like, we come from this lifestyle, but the key thing is to make it out. Not everyone make it out because growing up in the streets, I was losing friends at 12 and 13 years old that was getting murdered. 14 to 15 years old during those times that was getting murdered and, Mm -hmm. you know, in our twenties. So to, to live through the eighties and the nineties and to still be here above ground is a Mm -hmm. blessing. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing in the position I'm in. I'm a voice and I know people listen and, and, and follow my movement And I do everything in a positive way. I teach people to do it legit. Do it legit. Because when we was coming up in the music game, we were drug dealers. But now the way the game is, it hurts so bad because they're drug users. So it's different. We was not saying what we was doing was right, but that's how we was living, getting money. But now people are getting money to blow it all on drugs, and they're killing themselves because they're off so many different drugs. Because it, they doing that to impress people. To show, I don't show money online. People show money online. Oh yeah, I'm off. I'm off this Parkinsons. I'm I'm off these e pills, and y'all not realizing y'all are inspiring our young people to do this because they listen to you and they're fans of you. So they feel like, I want to be like this person. And this is what I want to do. And they're taking themselves out. Or, or, or they're, they're using drugs and never come back from it. So I, I just wish the labels is who put millions behind the music. I just wish they would start how they, they used to kind of be scared to let people talk about the gangster life. They used to be in, you know, like, no, you you might scare the people, but what about all these artists that's in the music industry that are literally using every drug you can think of and rapping about it. Now you got our 12 and 13 year olds and, and older going and doing these drugs to feel important. It don't take a drug to make you be somebody or feel like somebody. But to them it is because they see this artist doing it and he's big. He got money. He's major. I do drugs. I'm going to be like him. I'm going to be a rapper. I'm going platinum. A label finna sign me. Like the way people think now they feel like, oh, I can do this. I, it's gonna happen for me. I'm gonna be the next this person, and I tell them, no, you, you're not thinking right.
0: I said, what, what if would it you don't like
1: happen? What are you gonna fall back on?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What was your question?
0: I was gonna say, what would you like to see for this next generation? You know, there's such a platform with Black Lives Matters. You know, the whole world is listening. And I think sometimes we just, you know, put everyone together in one big mass. And even within Black Lives Matter and just the Black community in general, there's lots of individual voices. It isn't just one. Do you think there is some voices in the Black community that are maybe getting a little drowned out by the, you know, the bigger Black Lives Matter? You know, who are the voices you think that, you know, need some equal footing?
1: What I've learned is the negative voices are the loudest voices in these days and times. I struggle so hard to get positive messages out there. But if I was rapping like the old me, you know, when I was talking about shooting up stuff and the life that I used to live my old days, it would be through the roof. But now that I express what I've been through and, do it this way It's positive. So it don't get mm-hmm. as many ears because nobody want to hear that. Cause 80% of the time, a lot of the people are high anyway. So they want to hear the music. They like to jump in the car and listen to the music while they sit lean and pop pills. It, it make them feel a certain type of way. It, it, it gives them an ego, which is mm-hmm. so many people in the industry
0: right now,
1: rappers, that really didn't live that life. A lot of the young artists were in college. There were college students that had to drop out of college to pursue a career. But they rap about the struggle. What struggle? You 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 at Grambling University? You at one of the best colleges there is that costs money. And you didn't get there on a scholarship. But yet, you corrupt these young minds. So negative, negativity and negative messages is what's more powerful. Just like videos. You see people post videos on social media where people fighting each other, people jumping each other. The crazy stuff. Every blue moon Even the news, every blue moon, you may see something, a positive message, but 85% of everything you see in the world that got the most popularity is negativity. There was websites that normally post music, artists, up-and-coming artists, known rappers, but... They told, they writers doing all the protesting. They told all they writers, oh no, forget all that. We don't want none of that on the site right now. If it ain't about Black Lives Matter, if it ain't protests, interviews, we don't want it. It's a numbers game. They don't care about the lives. It's a numbers game. We don't care. We show this video of this person getting shot. Put that on the website. Everybody's gonna come look at that. That's what we live in. So it's gonna be hard for everybody to come together as one. Because I'm about man. I my business partner is, is is Caucasian. My brother from another mother who built. Because I also own One West Magazine that I built mm-hmm. over seven years ago. Me and my god brother Jason Perea. We call him Epidemic. Mm-hmm. And. I'm about working with any and everybody. Color your skin, none of that matters to me. I'm colorblind, none of that matters to me. It's about bringing people together, and that's what I'm about. But what goes on in the world is going to make it hard to ever happen. It's going to make it hard. It's going to make it literally almost impossible because social media in the media is what's making it impossible and what's destroying everybody. Cause the minute you see a video of somebody doing something to somebody, if it's a person doing something to someone that's a different nationality, that's going to make the opposite nationality mad. People react to that. So now you got a group of people that go out like, well, we've seen them do, do this to one of ours. So we finna go do it to one of theirs. And where they seen it at? They've seen it on social media.
0: Everything's so political nowadays. Do you feel there are yes. people in power out there that represent you?
1: Do I feel there's people in power that represent me?
0: Yeah. Are you <laughs> at the local level, the national level, in between? I mean, are, who, do you think there's room for new voices that aren't as extreme? Yes. That that'll represent yes. you better.
1: Yes, there, there's always room. There's always room for growth. Maxine Waters is is a powerful person. That mean right. That want to see the right things happen. There is people out there, that want to see the right things happen, but the voices are not loud enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of the, the voices that are more representative of you are, are sometimes drowned out, like you were saying, by the angrier voices? Exactly. Yes. Yes. And even in this day and age with the media?
1: myself, Even me representing myself or me representing a statement of never give up. I'm living proof. Life gets better it get drowned out. They would rather listen and rather watch a group of people fighting than me telling them how I'm a survivor of suicide and this is what I did to change my life. And if you ever in a position where you ever feel like you are on the dark side, and I'm giving totally real sincere from the heart, not nothing not I made up, not fiction, but all facts. But they would rather watch these three people, these two people jump in one person, and then him picking up the trash can hitting him with it. It's more entertaining than this person that been through a, a, had a, a very bad, tragic experience in life, but now he's educating. There's a lot of people that's gonna embrace what I'm saying. But the majority of the people are are, going to tune away from, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I'm going to pop this pill and sip this lean and I'm going to zone out. I don't want to hear
0: that. I think you have a great opportunity to rise above some of the media noise with your documentary. And I kind of want to close up by talking about that. Uh, before we head into that, I just want to make sure that everyone listening knows where to find you and your music online.
1: Most definite. Make sure, most definite, everyone reach out to me on Instagram. And my Instagram is OG Suicide. And I spell suicide with a C. OG C U I C I D E. And always remember. No matter what you go through in life or how bad you may feel your life is right now, there's nothing in this world can ever make you want to take your life and always remember, never give up.
0: So do you have a title for your documentary yet?
1: Uh, I'm I'm working. I kind of came with the storyboard because that's going to be the name of the album. That I'm working on right now, which you're the first person to know that. It's called the. Storyboard.
0: Hey, I, I love getting a scoop. This is good.
1: Oh yeah, you you're the first person <laughs> to know that. I, I had kept it, you know, it, it tucked away. So you're the first person to know the next album that I'm getting ready to release is titled the Storyboard.
0: Nice. So and is that going to coincide gonna an album
1: and DVD together?
0: Okay, so is that going to coincide with the release of the documentary? Yes, it is. Okay. So, what's your approach going to be like? What parts of your life are you going to cover in this documentary? Uh,
1: I'm going to start off at the foster home I grew up in. I'm going to start off with, you know, um, me being abandoned because I was born in Martin Luther King Hospital in Compton. So, I'm going to start off with, you know, the camera panning to Martin Luther King Hospital. And then it's gonna go from there to me sitting on the porch of the house I grew up in, and from there, um, the street I grew up on, Lantana Street, Lantana and McKinley in Compton, the, like that's where my life, you know, that's that's where my story goes right there, and and so on all over Compton. So, oh yeah.
0: It's so what's that neighborhood deep. like? What's that neighborhood like today?
1: Well, it's a lot of wars going on in Compton. You know, it's still a lot of shooting, and it's still a lot of drama. So you can can save the ones that you can save that's willing to listen, but, you know, there's still some that, like, oh, man, you did it. Now you're trying to tell us this, and, you know, you used to do this. You used to be on the block. Like, yeah, used to. I used to pee on myself as a kid, too, but I don't know more. When I was a baby, (sighs) So
0: you know when you make this, everybody's
1: not going to change.
0: Mhm. Are you gonna take your cameras back to the old neighborhood and interview people in that neighborhood?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. My OGS, yes, yes, yes. I got. So what's some other?
0: Like, do you have some people lined up already?
1: Oh yeah, most definitely. They can't wait. A lot of the old school people like like some of my old neighbors that's like 80 years old and 70 something years old that remember me as a kid, you know, some of them that passed, passed away. But you know, these are some of the ones that used to tell me, yeah, you keep on, I guarantee you don't live to be 16. And I was young And the life I was living, you you keep on. I see, I see you, you ain't going to live to be 16. You remember I told you. (laughs)
0: How about I went your father's sisters? The ones that uh, oh, they still they,
1: they still live in um at the house.
0: Do you ever talk yeah, to at them? At the house
1: and my adopted mom, she and I never knew that you know before she died, she had put me on the deed of the house too.
0: Oh,
1: and she always told me, you know, before she died, like when I do leave, I promise you, you you'll never need nowhere to live. And they still live in that house right now to this day.
0: Do you think they would agree to appear in your documentary?
1: Oh yeah, they would love to. I yeah. talk to them. I still talk to them. We cool.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We cool. Yeah, I talk to them on a regular basis. Yep.
0: Because you have They'd two be stories. because you, you've got your professional career story. Yeah. And then you have your personal story, and they they intertwine. But they're both very compelling. It sounds like you love equal parts of, you know, personal growing up. And then also just the excitement of, you know, doing concerts in Japan, being on the road and, you know, making, making uh, yeah. the records. There's a
1: lot, of, a lot of music in Houston, Texas, too. So I've mm-hmm. known, like, Flip and Paul Wall since they was, like, 14 years old. You know, little Flip is like a brother to me, him and Paul Wall know, I've known them cats, man. So they was young bucks. And I used to go to Houston in the 90s.
0: Well, do you have a a date that you want to finish this by and and release the documentary?
1: I'm really leaning probably towards the top of the year.
0: 2021.
1: But I'm going to put out some clips of it. uh, Like in November, I'm going to put out some just some one-minute clips, just some teasers, just to let people see, like, it, it's coming.
0: And so what are your hopes for What would be your, you know, ultimate goal when you put this out? I mean, do you want it to play on Netflix? I mean, do you want it to go Netflix, to film festivals?
1: I, I want it on Netflix for sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I want to get it to the film festivals as well. So that's going to be well, well, well put together, like, like a movie, well put together.
0: And you're you at a know, point I mean, in your life have, too, you know, you're absolutely. young enough to remember, but you still have yes. had, you know, you're old enough to have had a big, long career. And I think for a lot of people, they realize, unless you preserve your legacy, no one else is going to preserve yeah. that for you.
1: Well, only you can tell your story too. Cause if you put it in the hands of someone else, you know, there's going to be stuff that, <laughs> that that wasn't told the right way.
0: You know, you'll probably learn a lot of just the theme as you do it. But, you know, looking at it now, what do you think will be, you know, the theme of your life and career that comes through in this documentary?
1: My, my main picture is that I want to um, point out is – you can go through the most, you can live the most worst life possible, but that don't mean that that life that you live can never get better. And I went through the worst. I've, I've been shot with an AK. I got a two, two, three round in my back in 2007. And I wasn't even gangbanging then. We was at, at my house in Compton that where, um, my foster sisters live. I want my sisters. I call them my sisters. And we was getting ready to leave and go to the studio. And it was at night. And one of the, um, one of my boys that was out there was like, cause it's, it's a field by the house over there, two fields, one across the street from my house that connects to the other neighbor's house. And then it's a field that rolls up. Um, it's a street called Claude and McKinley McKinley right there. And one of my boys was like, It was probably like eight of us out there like, who is that? Look right there. Who is that coming through the field? And as everybody looked, because it was night, all you heard was, and I remember feeling one of the bullets hit me. And my son was there, my 10-year-old. He was 10 at the time. He's 23 now, but he was 10 at the time. I just came Mm -hmm. back from getting him some food. He was in the house. And doing the the shooting, you, all you can just you it seemed like it wasn't gonna never stop. And I got hit, and uh, another one of my boys had got hit. The bullet went through his back and came out his chest. He lived. He lost a lung. And the bullet tumbled and hit me in the stomach, and it it got stuck in my back. And I remember the whole time, all I could just remember is my son is in the house. My son is in the house. That's all I could think of. And, 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 in my mind, I'm like, something happened to my son. I'm, I'm going to prison forever, forever. I go, when I get up, you know, I have to shoot and stop. I get up and I go in the house. I had I to put my jacket down, you know, so I couldn't, my son couldn't see I was shot. And I walked in the house. And nobody b- believed that I was shot. Because one of my boys, he's like, who hit? Who hit? I'm like, I'm hit. And my boy Slim was like, man, you ain't hit Sizzle? You ain't, because that's my other name, Sizzle. they like, you ain't hit? I lift my jacket up and, man, they eyes open wide like they had just smoked a crack rock. It was like, wow. And I went in there and my son was standing there with the game control in his hand. Like. Just stunned and it was, it was you know, AK, it's, it's holes in the house. And I just, you know, just hugged him, man, and just squeezed him and, you know, told him, man, everything good. Everything going to be okay. He never knew I was shot. And I called his mom and told her to, you know, because we were separated at the time. And I told her to get over here fast. I just got hit. She didn't even believe me. Well, how are you hitting you on the phone? Forget all that. Get over here. And when she told my son that, and I, my uncle um, was there, which is uh, my, my adopted mom's grandson. And I told him, I showed him I was hit and I'm like, keep an eye on my son. Cause you know, the paramedics was on their way. And when they got there, I told him to take my homeboy cause he was worse than I was. Cause he was, you know, laid out almost unconscious. So yeah, I, I waited for the next ambulance to come and that's when they put me in and It took me away, and when she told him, uh, the wife told my son that I was shot. He was like, my dad wasn't shot because I seen my dad, and he didn't believe it because I never showed him because I didn't want him to panic because I didn't Mm -hmm. panic.
0: Wow. That is amazing. It sounds like, um, you know, for so many people here, that story, I mean, that's just an absolute war zone.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, most definite, most definite. In 2008, uh, we was in Compton. I was over in Compton. Um, a cat, that, you know, I've been knowing him since he was a kid. He had his, he was having a um, little birthday gathering at his house, and you know, I pulled up over there, and um, I, you know, I had a Hummer at the time. I parked my Hummer across this driveway because they, you know, the garage was open. So I was like, I'm gonna pull right here real quick. I ain't gonna be here that long, and I was on the phone. And I remember somebody saying, hey, watch that car right there. Y'all watch that car. And when I looked up, you see a front window and a back window, a gray car coming down. And I'm talking about I was close. If, If I'd have had my thing with me, I'd have knocked both of them. That's how close I was. But I looked, and I just spent and all you heard was busting and I got hit in the leg, but I mean, I was so close. It was some young cats. I was so mm-hmm. close to where if they knew what they was doing, I wouldn't be on the phone with you right now. And my Hummer saved a lot of people's lives because it would have been an ambush. If I had to park my Hummer in that driveway, a lot of people in that garage would have, would have been gone. Cause they pull right in front of the house and I ran towards one of the kids to cover up one of the kids. So a kid wouldn't get hit. And I felt I had got hit in the leg, but I'll take a bullet, man. Then, then to sit there and let a kid take a bullet, I'll, I'll take that. And that's what I did.
0: So was this random or did you know these people?
1: No, I didn't know them. it was just random. It would, I wasn't in my neighborhood. I was in somebody else's neighborhood. But that's this. That's the life of Compton. That's how it is. You could be chilling, and next thing you know, you could be shot. That's just how it is in Compton. That's how it is. That's how it was growing up. It could just happen, just like that. You could be having a good time, and next thing you know, the police and the paramedics is everywhere.
0: Just like that. You know, I want to wrap up and give you the last word here, especially based on what you just said. And, you know, my question to you would be and to really, you know, speak speak to people out there, you know, for people who embrace, you know, the gangsta rap or especially, you know, the, the sheltered suburban kid who is so far removed, you know, from these experiences you had, and they just, you know, want to put on some gangsta rap and and be these pretend gangsters, you know? And the reality is so different. You know, what would you just like to say to people? It sounds like I mean this this was some scary stuff for you, your family. And and I don't, you know, based on what you said earlier, this is not what street cred's all about. It, it's about, you know, you, you know, putting your body front of a child to to protect them, it's not being on the other side of you know doing a random drive by shooting, yes. but your integrity yeah. is actually protecting the people you love and living to tell so to the people out there, I think they get some mixed signals of what's true integrity in the rap and hip hop world, and I just want you to kind of wrap this up by saying, you know what do you think or what would you like to see as true integrity? in this industry that you know that you're such a big part of
1: I most definitely would like to see more leaders step up because we're living in a time where there's a lot of followers just like the music you know a lot of a lot of kids that they didn't grow up in that lifestyle but they listen to that music cuz they like that music my my thing and and most definitely I would like to tell them is don't mimic or become a part of what you're listening to, because not everyone is built for this life. And if you didn't grow up in it, don't pretend you did. Don't act like you did, because it could cost you your life. It, It could cost you a family member life, just because you're trying to be something or do something that you don't know nothing about. And that's what I see a lot of in this world today, especially with people gangbanging. They listening to it and now they a cripple. Now they are blood. Now they wearing blue. Now they wear red and never seen none of these hoods because they lived and grew up in Beverly Hills or in the suburbs where it's nice. Nice schools. Nothing nothing urban or ghetto at all. So don't get caught up in that lifestyle In that music please don't whatever y'all do please don't
0: well I'm anxious to see your documentary when it comes out so I want to stay in the loop on that I really appreciate your just straightforward talk that you know comes from years of experience and I just want to say you know thank you so much for you know sharing some really personal stories
1: Thank you for the invite anytime. I'm I'm always a phone call away.
0: Well, I'm going to blow your horn here. His name is OG Suicide with a C. The single is Keep It G. And I just really recommend you uh, bookmark his website and check out this documentary when it comes out.
1: And, And Keep It G is featuring my nephew, A.D.
0: Excellent. Well, I love how you keep it in the family. So you just keep on doing what you're doing and like i said hopefully uh netflix you'll you'll become a a number one netflix pick of the week when your documentary comes out how's that
1: looking forward to it because
0: this all the stories i just shared with you is going to be on there most definitely